Good day and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. My name is Michael. On Twitter, I'm known as Nigeria's Best. And co-hosting with me is Phoenix. We have two guests today. Our first guest is Zayad. Zayad is a civil engineer specializing in the oil and gas sector. Our second guest is Haruna. Haruna is a psychiatrist working for the NHS in England. Now, the three topics we'll be discussing today are firstly, we'll be looking at the, the drama surrounding Issa Pantami. The Nigerian government has issued a statement defending him and calling criticisms of him a cancel campaign, whatever that means. Secondly, we're discussing the proposals by Governor Nassim Erufai of Kaduna that schools should be built within 30 minutes of military bases to minimize the risk of kidnapping or terrorist attacks on educational institutions. Our third topic is concerns Emo State, the, in quotations, Supreme Court Governor. I, I know he gets offended when he's called that, but that's what they call him, the Supreme Court Governor of Emo State. His home was attacked uh, sometime yesterday by uh, unknown gunmen and burned to the burned, almost burned to the ground. So, firstly, the Isa Pantami story to Phoenix. We the drama started, I think, last week because we discussed this story last week, and we thought maybe Buhari would fire him because of the the international uproars surrounding the, the story. But instead, Garbasheu described it as a, as a cancel campaign. So firstly, Phoenix, what is a, in quotations, cancel campaign? And why has the presidency come out to, def to defend him so, so strongly? Are you there, Phoenix? We, we can't seem to hear you. Yes, I am. Sorry, I was on mute for a minute. Um, hi, Michael. Hi, hi Zahad and uh, Aruna. Thanks for joining us and hello, listeners. <laughs> I think Gabashir, whoever wrote that for him, or, or maybe he's in tune with uh, pop culture and uh, especially Twitter lingo, uh, for him to be calling it a cancel campaign is typically when what people used to, uh, how, they, how they call it, it's this sort of woke culture where, and typically it's it's used against left-leaning people, right? That uh, where they're trying to, um, you know, use sort of like um, mob pressure um, to um, highlight some perceived wrongdoing and and force um, an action. So essentially, to cancel the person and say this person. Um, I mean, should be taken out of normal discourse and all of that. But typically what you find is that um, in, in that scenario, there is some blurred line when people use, say, talk about cancel culture because it's, all, it's usually based on um, an, an ideological disagreement. So, of course, left-leaning folks will push against right-leaning folks and the people on the right will defend, but it's usually about ideology. And typically in some instances, it's not harmless. It's just 
people don't believe in what you're saying. But that's not the case here. For him to have used council culture is either that he doesn't understand it or he was trying to bring levity to a very, very serious matter. Mr. Pantami is being accused, I mean, of being a terrorist sympathizer. There, there, there is evidence, both in written form and of his speeches that show that he, he um, sympathized or he, he supported um, terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda, that he said that uh, Osama is a better Muslim than him, that he, that he was happy when infidels, in quote, I mean, which means unbelievers, people who are non-Muslims are killed. That is not some <laughs> ideological thing that people will debate and have a dis discussion on. There is no, whether you're left or right, Muslim or non-Muslim, that agrees that terrorism is right. So there's nothing about cancel culture on, on that. There's no, any reasonable right thinking person would abhor humans who, who, um, who um, support terrorism. So for him to say that clearly shows that, I mean, he, 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 he was totally, I mean, off, off the rails. And then furthermore, for you to even have the government, not only that you, you have such a person in your midst in such an important position, but to come out and defend it just shows how, how much of a really serious situation Nigeria is in under the Buhari administration. Because, I mean, even the excuses that they were given were, were, were quite strange. And I'm sure we'll get into it uh, with Zayad and, and, and Haruna as we go along. But to, but to label this about cancel culture was just beyond the pale as far as I'm concerned. This is not some issue that there is a debate on as to whether it is right or wrong. It is clear cut that this person should have no place in the government of, of Nigeria. Very clear cut. Thank you, Phoenix. I know you, you've said you, you don't think someone of of, of, of who's made such statements deserves a place in the Nigerian government. I'm going to ask Zayad. Uh, firstly, you, I, I'm sure you, you saw the stories in the news, you saw the, 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 the things that Pantami was a, accused of saying. In, in your view, Zayad, do you, do you think he should be forced to resign or do you think he should have resigned? Or do you agree with Garbashehu that these things were said in the past and therefore um, all things have passed away. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Michael. Uh, hello, Phoenix. Hello, Aruna. Hello, listeners. Um, regarding your question as to what I think, I think collectively, I wasn't, myself in particular, I wasn't expecting uh, more from the government, to be honest, because this administration, previous administration, it's been, there's a precedent here where um, um, the Nigerian government seemed to, to, to forgive people in a godlike manner, you know? It's like um, 
only God, you, you commit an evil deed and you plead with God for forgiveness. Oh, I realize my mistake and God forgives you. But I think we have reduced the bar for public office holders in the country. This shouldn't be a debate, okay? In saner climes, this would not be a debate, regardless of what side of the divide you're on, be it um, culturally where you come from, or what religion you belong to. Now, I won't even start to debate as to whether he said those things or the right or wrongs of those things. The fact that the person in question has come out to apologize for what he said means that, yes, he actually did say those things. Yes, those views and opinions are wrong. And personally, it is my opinion that, you know, if you've um, displayed um, such views in the past or in the present, you shouldn't hold a public office. But I appreciate the fact that uh, in this country, I mean, there are several examples we can set of, you know, the quality of people that are public office holders, be it in terms of corruption, in terms of um, 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 their views and opinions not agreeing with um, secular states, but still, they're, they're thriving in public offices. We shouldn't be the case. Unfortunately, this is where we are as a nation. Okay, the man has come out to, to apologize, meaning that he said those things, meaning that those views are wrong. And I saw, like you rightly said, some of the, the things he said, some of the, uh, um, th the, the, the comments he made. <laughs> you see, let it be known, Nigeria as of today is a secular state, okay? You're allowed to practice whatever religion you're on. I think these are the kind of issues that would arise when a religious leader is holding public office. See, expectedly so. And I don't like the fact that Nigerian governments keep acting like um, there are no competent hands in the country. You know, you can't suck... Uh, um, Pantami, if you sack him, who will take over? There are so many competent people in various states, even if you want to satisfy, you know, the you want to include all states in your appointment, there are competent hands in each state of the country. I think that is, that is not a topic to debate. Now, if this man has come, come out to, to apologize, owned up to these things, I see no reason why you shouldn't. In fact, I feel by this um, statement that Gabashir who has made, he has given um, a signal of the stance of government. He has given a signal, a signal of the stance of his administration, the administration he speaks for, that, um, um, you know, whatever you've done in the past, it's okay. As long as you, you, you regret them, you won't do them now, it's okay, you're welcome. And we cannot continue like that. And at the beginning of my speech, where I said, there's a precedent to these things. It is the same country where um, terrorists have repented uh, and, and we treat them, there's no form of justice. You know, anyone can go commit a crime and then, oh, I have repented, I was, uh, I have now found the lights and, and everything will be okay, we just move on. But that shouldn't be the case. And unfortunately, th this, this um, statement or the backing of, of of um, Isap and Tami by the government has also reiterated this fact, which previously nothing has brought it to the light where the government publicly, you know, declares its stance for such thing. But now it has done so. So it means that regardless of what you've said or done before, as long as now you, you, 
you seem to have you know um, seen the lights then it's okay and you're welcome which shouldn't be the case and this is my stand thank you Zayad my follow-up question to you is a number of prominent people on social media and in the general public seem to be defending um, Isa Pantami and the majority of them seem to be arguing that any criticism of Isa Pantami is some sort of attack on the North or an attack on Islam. So what is your response to that? Do, do you, how, how do you respond to, to people who say any the criticisms of Pantami is because there's some conspiracy against Islam or an attack on, on the North? What, how would you respond to that? Um, well, an attack on Isa Pantami, you see, First, I would I would see reasons why they're having we're having this debate and why um, this matter has been has caused a lot of controversy within the previous weeks. You see, it it's a mixture or a combination of certain delicate challenges we're facing as a country. It has a political undertone in it. Isa Pantami is a religious leader, so it has a religious undertone to it. And then culturally, he's northern, so the northern the, the northerners would always see Isa Pantami as one of their own. So it also has like a cultural undertone to it. And you would agree that you know these are certain um, we are we are divided along these lines in the country. So first, coming from the north, I mean, I spent almost all my life in the north, so I know how I can you know, confidently say how the Northerners will think. We need to realize that first, we are Muslims, yes. The Northerners, they are both Muslims and Christians in the North, yes. However, we belong to a universal set called Nigeria, right? And Nigeria as a whole is not an Islamic state, it's not a Christian state, it's not a state belonging to any religion, it's a secular state, okay? What my Northern brothers need to realize is because we belong to that universal set called Nigeria, and Nigeria has all of these religion in it, it then means that one, a religious leader who have declared certain um, certain stands which which are seen as you know being Islamic or who will take the side of Muslims which which he, of course he can do so he's allowed to do so personally who because he's a religious leader at the end of the day who would um, take the the side of Muslims or a Christian leader who will take the sides of Christians when you bring such person to now hold a public office in a secular state where there are various religions, certain comments such as we're seeing with Isa Pantami will come back to haunt him. And it's not an attack on Muslims or not. These are his views, okay? But what is unacceptable is he's holding a public office of people that are not just Muslims, of people that belong to several religions. And these people are saying, because you've publicly declared these views, which are, which are, extreme, which are extreme views, when you were facing issues of insecurity as a country, we are the northern part of the country has been, you know, war ridden by Boko Haram. 
several atrocities have been committed. If you are, if if there are certain statements you've made in the past that that seem as though you are, you know, you you are showing sympathy for this terrorist group, then it is very okay for Muslims and Christians alike to call for your resignation, whether you're you're repentant or not. Now, in the North, terrorist activities have affected both Muslims and Christians. So this is not a case of, um, if you have deep understanding, it's not a case of uh, uh, you're calling for a Muslim or Christian thing, no. Because certain comments you've made regarding terrorist activities has gone on to affect people of all religions. You see, I was in Kano, I was in the in the Emir's mosque when Boko Haram attacked in Kano and I barely survived. You know, I had to escape the mosque. I was around there with all the gunshots and everything when they attacked the mosque. I was, I, I, I mean, I'm an, I studied in Bayero University, Kano, and I was still in school. In fact, I was in my second year when, when um, Boko Haram attacked the old campus in Bayero University, Kano. I've seen my friends change school because of this. So we've all been in the receiving end, Muslims, Christians alike. So when you make such 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 um, views public, who and don't get it twisted, some Muslims don't agree with these views. And all Muslims, I think the stand of um, terrorism for Muslims is, 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 is very simple and plain. There's no debate in it. Okay, terrorism and wanton killings of the wanton killings is unacceptable in Islam. So when you've made such comments, you know, that as that is seen as being sympathetic with terrorists, then it is very much allowed to call for your resignation. And it is not an attack on Muslims at all. It is not. Because, you know, some of these comments, whom you've shown sympathy to terrorist groups, those terrorists have caused mass destructions to Muslims and Christians alike. So many Muslims are displaced in the North because of the activities of terrorism. So it is not an attack on Muslims. It is definitely not. However, like I said, it is delicate because it's a mixture of um, various things in the country, various challenges we are facing. You know, the North would always think, especially politically, and that is how we've been divided politically, that, you know, when the North is in a public office, you shouldn't call for their resignation because um, the guys that are calling for their resignation are from other parts of the country. If it's a southerner, yes, he should resign, of course, because he's a southerner and 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 what? It's, it then becomes an, a case of the North versus the South. And the North would always want to be seen as protecting their own, you know? That is the default um, mode of thought of Northerners, that if certain things like this are going on, why are the Southerners calling for him? And to make matters worse, it's happened to me, it's not just a Northerner, but then a political, uh, then an Islamic Islamic leader as well. So imagine what would have been the case if Isa Pantami was a Muslim scholar, but from the southern parts of the country, do you think the northerners will be this um, interested in this case? They wouldn't be this interested in this case. But like I said, um, um, the country is facing challenges along the lines of um, 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 where we are from, along the lines of um, religion, along the lines of cultural backgrounds and whatnot. And that is what makes this case quite confusing, even for northerners. And then they feel that you know, this is um, an attack on Muslims. So whilst you, whilst you understand <laughs> how they're thinking, it's important to, to, 
to you know educate them that this is not an attack on muslims educate them that we as as northerners we belong to you know the universal set of 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 nigeria and nigeria consists of people of various religious backgrounds and even in islam you know you accommodate as long as you don't live in an islamic state you accommodate people from other religions thank you thank you zayad for your comments i i do agree that we need to be in an, in one nation the kind of nation where when you criticize people you should you should review the criticism on its merits not whether or not the person is christian or or muslim but haruna i need to bring you in at this point because one of the things zayad made made reference to is the tendency that whenever a prominent northern politician is criticized people tend to rally around him to protect him especially if he's for example if he's a muslim a cleric who is also a politician people rally around him now i want to get the context because i know you're from borno but you're a christian from from borno so in in your perspective and in your experience how have minority christians in the north been able to survive this this political delicate balance that you have in northern nigeria how how have you as how do christian politicians survive this i don't know if my question is clear enough yeah no it's um quite clear and um, again thank you for having me um michael and phoenix and um zaya thank you for your um wonderful insights which were i thought were quite um unbiased you know in that sense and coming to the question of you know how do maybe christians minorities in the north survive um with the culture or the climate of what's happened i suppose coming back to the isa pansami case will also maybe take a few steps back to look at maybe someone like a babache lawal i think who was also a christian northerner who was faced with probably less um a anyway an issue which was maybe i would say of in terms of consequence or you know it's probably less than the case of pantami but obviously we know the outcome of the case so again as a minority you know in the north i think you wouldn't have the same level of support you know like someone like insa pantami is enjoying and probably if we look at political office holders from the north now the um secretary to the federal government i suppose is probably the most senior ranking Christian Northern in office but if you look down the list I'm sure we'll spend the whole evening trying to look for one you know um someone high ranking so that just shows you the disadvantage in that sense but like um Zayad has clearly said you know you would also need to look at um you know things from the cultural religious aspect of where things stand so for the minority northern christian you know it is very difficult to probably gain the same political clout and protection to enjoy if things go wrong and the only way to survive is probably look at someone like um i think the former speaker of the house um forgotten his name now but um you know i think his dogara yeah for example rose to become speaker and now he wants to go to a higher office but he had to jump from party to party you know to dine with the same people he opposed previously just because if he were for example a northern muslim for example he may have still remained in his pdp and probably would have 
had more political cloud and things, but because of that religious aspect also, is not able to. So it is difficult waters. It is a difficult one. And don't forget, for example, when you say, okay, bring a nominee from the North, just like Zayad has rightly said, you wouldn't, I mean, the North is majority Muslim. So more likely than not, if you were to say bring a candidate from the North, it would have to be Northern Muslim. Then that again, you know, secludes the minority Christians in that sense of it. So it is a difficult terrain, you know, I must say. Thank you. Thank you, Haruna. My follow-up question to you is, how do you think, because if, if you read the memo that Isa Pantami allegedly signed, the JNI, Jamatu Nasru Islam, on behalf of Jamatu Nasru Islam, JNI. One of the things he said was uh, Christianity spreading in the North is a threat that they need to, to put down, was basically calling for violence against uh, Christians and terrorist attacks against middle belters. Now, you've mentioned the fact that Boss Mustafa is the most senior Northern Christian in, in government, but how do you think other Northern Christians within the APC, what, what do you think their response is to the, the light touch approach that Buhari has adopted to Pantami? Aren't they offended personally that this kind of man is still in government? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Whilst they could be offended or maybe offended in private, obviously in public, you, they wouldn't also come out to go against um, the government in that case, uh, in maybe Buhari, for, because the next thing you'll see is um, they will dig up your old files as well, isn't it? Well, you've also done this, 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 this. You know, that's how it works in the center, you know. And so, so whilst they may be offended in private, I don't think they will be able to cry in public. So they will just be numb. And that's why a lot of them haven't said anything. I don't think I've seen anyone who's come out to outrightly condemned to say, oh, he must resign all things. Everyone is just quiet, except a few people who are maybe apolitical or don't, um, you know, are not in that clique. But I haven't seen anyone, probably you may correct, who's come out, you know, from that APC minority group to say, well, this is wrong, this man must go. And I think, again, apart from going along the lines of religion, also like um, Zayad had rightly said, you know, culturally, say well but he's a northerner we should still keep him you know if the post goes to someone else or somewhere then you know it's a loss for us that's how they sort of frame it you know whilst it may not necessarily be the the, the case you know but um yeah i think it is difficult for and and i think don't forget the way this government has been set up you know people already have this preconceived idea that it is a very I don't know how to put it, but it's very sort of Muslim, Northern dominated kind of government, if you will agree with me. And so for you to come out as the voice to say, well, you are going against this, then you it would be seen that you're also going against the majority in power at this time. So it would be a dangerous game for any of those APC minority you know, Christians from the North to rise up against um, Pantami. So I think they would rather sit on the fence and just wait for things to play out naturally than to pick any sides to these um, debates, I would say. Thank you, Haruda. Um, you, you've provided an inter interesting perspective. So in effect, the 
northern minority Christians in government are just sitting on the fence because they don't want to be, be on the spotlight and suffer political attacks from maybe uh, Buhari's people or even be prosecuted by the EFCC. Well, on to our next topic, Governor Nasir Arufai of Kaduna State. Um, there have been a lot of kidnappings and terrorist attacks hitting Kaduna. And I don't understand why, but Arufai's proposal is that schools should be built within a 30 minute distance from military bases, specifically said military bases. He said they cannot be near police stations or civil defense because the police and civil defense are incapable of dealing with the terrorists. It has to be military bases. Now, Phoenix, is this a, is this a, is this a brilliant proposal from our Harvard trained governor? I find it I find it quite absurd. I mean, totally absurd. I mean, essentially, he, what he's what he's done um, is to practically just confirm that the government's helpless situation in, in managing the insecurity in, in the country, which is quite strange. Because I mean, for for Kaduna, where I mean, we know how many military installations are already in Kaduna. And, and to continue having the issues that we have today, I mean, it's, it just continues to surprise me. But to his point around, I mean, the absurd, absurdity of it is, I, 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 I mean, even if, you, even if you start to say that, okay, we will have schools zoned in a particular area and, and, and therefore allow for uh, for them to be sighted around military installations. Apart from the fact that you have practically given up because what it means is you're not even thinking about police. You have already said that the police cannot do what they are set up to do. Um, the, the, the question then becomes, how, how do you, I mean, how do you measure that response time and, and, and how will it work in practicality? I mean, how you make the decision to cite a school is quite different from how you make a decision to cite a military installation. Anyone will tell you that, in fact, by citing schools closer to military installations, you are in fact welcoming, um, a, a, in fact, creating a security risk. Case in point, the, the, I can't remember the name of the school, that um, higher, that tertiary institution where they kidnapped um, students, it wasn't far from a military installation and it still happened. So the point that he's making clearly makes zero sense. And, and to, the, to the extent that this is a state when they, when they needed to use to show a show of force, we saw the army do that in the early days of this administration, when they reacted to the, the members of the IMN who were said to have blocked the chief of army staff on his way and they, they went all out to, to practically wipe out, uh, wipe them out by showing, a, I mean, displaying a show of force. And, and we know what happened with um, over 300 people dead and, and, and buried and all of these kind of things. One wonders why you cannot display that same show of force to bring an end, or at least to send a very clear message to these bandits that this, would, this is not acceptable. Instead, you are deflecting from, from that and abdicating your responsibility and then taking a turn to say, schools should now be cited close to military installations. 
are we are we at war? I mean, has the situation become so irreversible that people are now being told they must live their lives in a state of fear? Because that's what you're saying. There's nothing we can do. Make sure that your school is close to a military installation, otherwise there's no safety. What message are you sending to parents? I mean, to and I mean to teachers, to those who do work in the education sector, that their normal activity is no longer safe enough for them to be in the right areas. And I want to cite a school. I want to cite it in a place that is accessible for people to to get to, for children to go to school safely. Not to go and cite. I mean, when I'm citing a military installation, I'm not going to cite it in in in, in the center of town or close to town. So the, the decision making around both, it, it, they're two clearly different things. And now you're trying to bring, bring them together to make up for your abject failure as a, as a state governor and in the wider remit from the, from, for the presidency as well. It, security was one of the key things that, we, that this government told us they were coming in to do. Six years later, we have a worse security situation than we had before. And there has been no commitment to addressing it, to putting a stop to these things. We were told by, was it not Gumi that was saying the other day that Buhari knows where the bandits are? So why are you not deploying all your forces to, to go and, you know, I mean, wipe them out and make sure that uh, they, I mean, all we hear is warnings and warnings. And then we hear Rufai coming up with this rather absurd proposal um, to, to, I mean, I just, it's just, it's just a very ridiculous thing in my mind. Thank you, Phoenix. I'll bring in Zayad now. Um, Zayad, Phoenix said by even proposing this idea of schools near military bases, the Nigerian government is basically saying we've given up with our attempts to secure schools and now we've come up with this very interesting proposal. Now the question I have for you, Zayad, is I know you said you were you were within the vicinity, you were actually in the mosque when Boko Haram attacked the Emir of Kano. So my, my question to you, Zayad, is how, how is it possible that Kaduna has become so insecure that the police or civil defense are incapable of protecting young children? How, how did we get here, Zayad, if my, if my question is, is clear? Um, yes, yeah, your question is clear. You see, uh, as to how did you get here, I mean, that, 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 that alludes me, to be honest. That alludes me, you know. It, it's, it, that, we won't stop talking about it if I, if I attempt to answer that question because the state of insecurity we find ourselves today is, is uh, it's been coming for years now. It's been coming for years now, and especially in the North, because to be honest with you, even while I was young, I knew with the things, the sort of things I was seeing in the North, I knew that, you know, if, if certain things are not done, there will be a time where we will have a huge security challenge in our hands. And that is but what is can, going can to you, can you be, Sorry, Zahar, can you be... Specific. So when you say you saw some things in the North when you were young, can you give a specific example of what did you see? You see, in the North, uh, whilst growing up, 
I was working with my brother in a day, um, sometimes around 11 p.m. in Kanwa, not too long ago. And we saw some kids, you know, sleeping on a heap of construction sand, you know, some kids just sleeping on a heap of construction sand. And, and this was during the time of um, the, the cold season in Kanwa. And, you know, the north can be really cold at times when it goes cold. And we saw the states they were in, and I was discussing with my brother, these kids, okay, when they grow up, how would they satisfy? You know, when you even go through the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they cannot satisfy any, any. No, no shelter, no food, nothing. And very soon they'll start having, you know, biological needs and whatnot. How will they satisfy all of these needs and get basic necessities of life? And we know that, look, they become very vulnerable and you have loads of them in the North. So when I say I saw certain things, this is what I mean, okay? With that, you know that, look, if they don't start experiencing, they don't start tasting good governance because it all boils down to good governance. When they don't start experiencing good governance to change certain things, then, you know, they become very, very vulnerable. They become very vulnerable such that, you know, back then for 200 Naira or 500 Naira, you literally get a kid to do anything for you. You get him to steal for you. You get him, you, you, you see what I mean? So you, you can have him do anything just for something, 5,000 naira is like, is like, what, 200 million to him. Like, um, Zayan, so, I'm sorry to cut you again. So you, you've told us the first part. So you were, they were young, you saw them very vulnerable, sleeping on, on basically construction, uh, abandoned construction heaps. So that's the vulnerability. The second question is, you said when you were under attack in Kano, you were hearing machine guns. So what kind of weapons are these guys using that the police and civil defense cannot uh, stop them? So the, yes. the, I think my, my question is, how did those kids grow up to become men and how did they access those weapons that are now threatening even the police? So how, how does that work? Very good. You know, we're getting there. <laughs> we're getting there. So... I mean, that is why, that is why, okay, I partly agree with what Phoenix said in that, you know, the Kaduna state government, by making that statement and making it public, okay, they, in one arm, they have accepted their failures or they have declared that we have failed and we have, we have run out of options to secure lives and properties, which is the basic essence of governance in the first place. Now, while I also agree that, look, the police, the DSS, some now I believe cannot really handle these guys because this, the, the, the nature of the sophisticated armory those guys use, come on, man. The police in the North, to be honest, is fearful for his life as it, as it stands. The police is fearful for his life. And, and then that brings me to your question, how, you know, did this guy get, did these guys get this, this weaponry, you know, to even um, go beyond um, um, our, our security architecture. First is, look, I heard the story of one of the bandits. I think during the time Sheikh Gumi was visiting bandits and I, there was a story I read where one of the bandits was saying, you know, he, he suffered, he's read his cattle and then something happened, his cattle was seized and 
blah 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 so he, he all the money he had he saved it up and then he purchased an AK47 and joined the military now the statement he made that he purchased would tell you or would suggest that there's a black market for these weapons sophisticated weapons there now whether the conspiracy theories are right that you know these weapons are smuggled into the country i don't know and i would not like to speak of something i do not know but what i do know is due to these statements and other happenings is there is a black weapon for getting ammunition okay there are several conspiracy theory but again if you don't have facts you shouldn't speak on those things but you know you remember the porosity of our borders how how porous our borders are and also our neighboring countries are, are facing challenges of their own there are theories that um terrorism in nigeria is backed up by bigger terrorist organizations in the globe and then uh, talk about smuggling of ammunition i think this is not this is not new sometimes you see the nigerian immigration service or the customs service would seize you know um weapons that have been imported illegally into the country uh, who are importing those weapons what is the essence of importing how are these weapons being imported into the country why are they being imported into the country doesn't that suggest that there is a black market for purchasing of sophisticated weapons in the country if those weapons are were seized in our borders by customs or immigration if they were seized what if they made their way into the country and they are unaccounted for by our security agencies it then means that there is a black market for for selling of ammunition and it's a business that you know that i would think is big in the country otherwise how else would you explain because to be honest i've heard this gunshots is is no hearsay they are they are like you see in the movies they are sophisticated they they spell terror okay you you shiver by hearing you know the, these gunshots they are no, it doesn't suggest whatsoever that uh, uh, uh um, the police or the dss can combat these guys it only suggests that only the military can even face these guys with with, with chances of survival so i thank mean you, I, thank you zayat i have to cut you here because i'm going to bring in aruna but well, thank you for providing a, a sort of descriptive uh explanation as to to what is going on but Haruna, I know you're you're from Bornu, which is another state that has been deeply, deeply ravaged by Boko Haram, and I also know you're a psychiatrist because what I'm trying—I was looking at some data from I think it was produced by a group, a company called SBM, and they showed that a vast number of schools across the north have been shut down because of insecurity. Because we're going beyond Kaduna now. what sort of psychological or mental impact do we expect this lack of schooling and this general lack of security to have on the young people these are people from as young as maybe 4 or 5 who are in school up to, up to the age of 17 what are the long term mental impacts that th- this this lack of education and lack of security will, will have on on, on them Okay thank you um this is some um, sort of bringing sort of this what we'll say this social you know aspect of you know what is happening isn't it in stem and then in terms of in the long run um i think like um zayad alluded to you know a lot of these children you know this is even in peace times in the north grew up not schooling or having the basic needs of life and 
when it was time or when it is time for any violence or things to be done, these people can easily, you know, be drawn into these conflicts and used as the foot soldiers because they haven't got anything to lose and they've never known anything. But going back to, and, and then much, much, um, much so for those children now, like in the Northeast, uh, especially that are in displaced, um, you know, IDPs and don't have schools and things. Again, if the government does, I mean, I think I must, I would, as usual, I will commend maybe the governor, maybe of Borno for sort of providing a lot of things in terms of resources, in terms of schools and in the IDPs and things, but there's only so much any person can do. And this children will grow up, you know, one being educationally disadvantaged in that, you know, they won't be at par with their colleagues or their mates um, as we would need for a child developing. So that in itself is going to make them disadvantaged in later life. And then secondly, these guys will grow up again, um, still stemming from that disadvantage is that they won't have jobs or things to do in the future. They won't have the skills and easily will be could easily be drawn into crime life of crime again and then psychologically some of these people have never known peace you know from early age you know and they will also grow up believing that is what the human experience should be and if you call them to be a part of any militia or any group then to them it will be normal because they also suffer the consequences so it wouldn't be, they wouldn't have any human feelings or empathy, you know, for others. And they would just think it's part of life. So it is going to be a very, 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 very big time future problem if nothing properly is done. I know we have a lot of NGOs that have seen this and that's why they've, you know, based themselves in the Northeast just to try to curb some of these spots. How much can they change? You know, that's a question I don't think um, we'll be able to answer here. All right, thank you. Thank you, uh, Haruna, for for painting the picture. It, it looks quite quite grim. You may be actually very very yes, it's very very worrying because of dealing with a future generation who will be undereducated and have been accustomed to to violence. So I just hope and pray that that the the NGOs and the government can be successful in rehabilitating uh, these uh, our fellow Nigerians. But on to our Final topic, our Supreme Court, in quotation, Supreme Court Governor of Imo State, Hope Uzodima. Um, Phoenix, his country home in Oru East local government area came under attack. They armed gunmen, shot dead two of his guards, and they set his Rolls Royce on fire and set off half, set half of the house on fire. I saw the videos. It looked scary that it would attack the, the home of a governor. And a few weeks ago, I think about two weeks ago, a prison in the same uh, emo state was attacked by unknown gunmen. So, Phoenix, in your view, what, what is going on? Is this just normal political violence or is this, as people say, IPOB now turning into a sort of insurgent, armed insurgent group? Yeah, I really can't tell. I mean, I've been following this with interest uh, for quite some time until the events of this weekend, um, particularly since um, there was that attack on on the police um, headquarters in in Imo State and and the and the and the prison break and the correctional center where I mean some armed armed uh, 
gunmen attacked and uh, freed some prisoners. Apparently, they were trying to get to the to the armory and, and didn't succeed in doing that. But but what piqued my interest? I mean, of course, I mean, we, we have been hearing rumbles in in the southeast and particularly in Imo State. That there's there's some some bit of um, armed struggle going on between the security forces and unknown um, armed assailants. What piqued my interest was that Opuzodima in the aftermath of that attack came out and said it's people that is politically motivated, people from outside of Imo State pretending to be IPO, blah, blah, blah. So it seemed like he absolved IPO. But, but then again, the, the police were, were certain that that IPO were the ones that did it. Now, so that's what's been going on. And, and it's been a source of concern because that's another security issue we really cannot afford at this point in time. It just seems like everywhere you turn in Nigeria, there's something wrong going on. Until this weekend, and, and two events happened. First was that the, there was a joint operation between the army, I think the DSS and the police on IPOP. I mean, attacking their, their base in Imo State and, and killing um, practically, I think was the number two person to Namdi Kano or something, one of their leaders who they said had masterminded that attack. So he was killed along with some people. When in the same Saturday morning, that was when um, Governor Zodima's uh, um, um, uh, village home was, uh, was burnt and some security officers were, were killed. I think one person or, or, or two or three, I can't remember. So it, it, it's, and in the aftermath of the, so both incidents happened within the same morning. So it was like, what I've read tells me that the attack on iPod happened first and barely, maybe a few hours later. So I'm still struggling to understand, was it iPod responding right away to attack Hope's house? Because they did say, that uh, Hopu Zodima will pay dearly for, for this attack and this killing of a, of a senior member of IPOB. Could they have responded that quickly? And then we've seen other incidents happen that, that's, that, that uh, I mean, there was another one in River State and all of that. So it's becoming, it's, 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 it's becoming a much bigger issue now. And, you, and if you ask me, I really don't know if this is IPOP or if this is this, this is these are political actors who are taking advantage of the fact that there is an IPOP and then using that cover to to play out their own their own games. But one thing is clear, there is a problem brewing in Imo State and in the Southeast, and it needs to be brought under control and brought under control by reasonable people, not by people who who would throw more fuel on the fire and create a bigger situation that then turns the Southeast into another Northeast. That's, that's my concern now, because it's all these um, attacks and counterattacks, and before you know it, it's another Mohammed Yusuf, Boko Haram, and, and all of a sudden, uh, Nigeria is fighting on multiple fronts. So, I mean, one is not clear where all of this is leading to, but one thing is very sure, it's not, it's not going in the right direction. Thank you, uh, Phoenix. Zayad, Phoenix has just said we need to have a comprehensive approach to dealing with the IPOB problem before it turns into another Mohammed Yusuf 
crisis that then ends in a full-blown insurgency. Now, one of the things people have suggested is we need to have what they've called a sovereign national conference where Nigeria can be fully restructured and become a federal nation so that everybody feels that they have a stake in the country and also can function at their own pace. So what is your response to that? Would you, would you support a sovereign national conference that leads to restructuring? Um, well, I, I mean, I totally agree with Phoenix when he said that, um, before I answer your question, I, I agree with him because you'd see some similarities between what is happening there and, you know, how the insecurity in the Northeast began. So I think it's important. It's really, really important that we devise, um, a way of providing a lasting solution, especially in emo states. Um, I struggle with the timeline as well. I don't know. Like he said, one of the attacks came first, but almost, you know, in close time in the other happened. So it's it's difficult for one to tell. But you see, why I say there's a similarity is, you know, the the you know, there's like some people revolting against state apparatus in a state, and, and state governments don't take that lightly. You know, the attorney general of Imo State has come out and made some allegations. And in, in response, um, members of the Eastern Security Network have also said the Imo State government will not, they will make, um, they, they will create unrest for him. And, you know, they are going to give him some job as well. So, I mean, that that doesn't smell good for the state. Regarding the, conf- the, the conference, I mean, I think under Jonathan, this was attempted. And to the best of my knowledge, this was done, and a report was was a report emanated from that conference. Now, calling for another one because you have to agree that a lot of um, resources are used for that. Calling for another one, it's like um, going back and forth. I think at this point in time, no Nigerian leader don't know what to do. We all know, and they know what is right to do. If some parts of the country um, are feeling like um, they are not uh, adequately represented or they feel like they don't have a say in the country, I think the call for restructuring is long overdue. It's something the government should look, look into. Now, whether the way to do that is to set up again yet another sovereign conference to do that, I feel that is repetitive. Okay, I feel we've gone that route before. If we do another one, a report will come. It is the will, it is the political will. First, you need to have someone who believes that restructuring is the way to go. He needs to believe that, you know, restructuring the country is the way forward. And then the political will to see to the end comes into play. Because otherwise, if the political will is not there, what I see some political leaders doing now is to, to you know, to publicly declare their, their position as to support restructuring just to gain political um, sympathy, just to gain more followership. And then when that happens, you see everyone going back to their normal activities. So I think political will is ever so important in seeing this to the end. But I also think, you know, restructuring the country is the way to go. Whether it is to carry out another conference, I mean, that I cannot answer because I feel we've done that before. Thank you, Zayad. I'm going to bring in Haruna because our time is up. So Haruna's question is, is the, is the final question. Haruna, 
Zayed agrees that there should be restructuring. So why is, do you think Buhari is opposed to it? Okay. Um, well, I think very similar to what um, Zayed has said, um, lots of uh, the political I mean, leaders would say, well, um, in support of um, restructuring, but then when it comes to, all right, who will car carry out the task of restructuring, then no one seems to want to be the one to build the cut in that sense. So, and don't forget, there is this fear that if you restructure, I mean, restructuring means a lot of things to different people, I suppose that's where we need to start. And I think places like in the North where the feeling is, well, if you restructure, we will lose out in terms of, because we've always held on to political power for, you know, in, in that sense, for that reason, and we'll lose out in terms of resources, we are still probably less developed, you know, compared to the South and the West. And if you were to restructure to say everyone should sort of, you know, contribute based on what they produce, and maybe their GDP, then some of the Northern states will say, well, they are disadvantaged. So there's always been that fear that, well, what, be what belongs to Nigeria belongs to us all. And restructuring will mean the oil producing regions will control the oil, you know, and then the East where there's a lot of business will control that. Then the Northerners will then think, well, what would we have to contribute or to gain? So why should we go for such a thing? Which in a way it's counterproductive because if there were to be restructuring, then every region like we know will normally say will then live up to its full potential rather than being parasitic as the case is now. And so for Buhari, I don't think he's the right person that will tell you he wants to sort of muddy the waters at this time by bringing up the issue of restructuring. I can see um, Tinubu has talked about restructuring, but even if, for example, he were to become president, do you think he would easily be able to restructure the country based on you know the what the restructuring people are talking about. I doubt much because the next thing you will hear is impeachment in the house, and then he will drop the matter. So I don't think we are ready for it. Unfortunately, I don't know the way forward because, like um, we've all said, we've had sovereign national conferences and they've spent money, drunk coffee, and you know deliberated, but no one has read the report today apart from the president, who I mean, including Jonathan, you know, who was the past president, and other presidents have all seen the report but no one was able to implement what was suggested um i think it still goes back to the fact that yeah some regions are afraid of that and they feel they will lose out on power and unfortunately it's a democracy of majority and i think the north seems to have majority if we talk of um, these kind of things if you were to bring it to vote and um, it will always i mean if nothing different is done it, it, it is going to be a very far-fetched approach you know to governance so i think buhari <laughs> will not be the person to bring restructuring thank you thank you haruna for your response um i i suspect that you're probably right buhari won't agree because he he sees himself as as the, the champion of of, of the North, so he would not want to do anything that in his view uh, diminishes their power. The only thing I should clarify is the difference between a sovereign national conference and the other conferences is with the, the, the key word, the sovereign, which means whatever is agreed by that conference automatically becomes the new law or the new constitution. With the constitutional conferences, 
you have to refer it back to the House of Assembly or the presidency for them to debate. And then the National House of Assembly has to somehow pass legislation to get it through. But with the Sovereign National Conference, what the people agree at that conference becomes the new constitution. But our time is up anyway. So firstly, I must thank you, Zayad and Haruna, for taking time out of your busy schedules to be here. Then I thank Phoenix for co-hosting this podcast with myself. And finally, I will thank our listeners for being loyal and always giving us helpful feedback on how we can improve our podcast. So from myself, I say have a fantastic seven days. Thanks, Ayad and Haruna, for joining us. Uh, thanks, Michael, again. And uh, have a wonderful week, everyone. Bye. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us.